Welcome to Crafted with Cradle, a curated conversation over cocktails with Charlotte's Best. This is Dion. Hey, this is your girl, Davida, and, and we are Dumpin' and Swatch. Swatch, and we are Crafted with Cradle. that dog. <laughs> Welcome to another edition of Crafted with Cradle. I am your host, Dr. Keith Cradle, and remember, this is the podcast for curated conversations over cocktails with some of Charlotte's finest and definitely some of Charlotte's best in our art and cultural community. As always, I definitely want to start off thanking Jason Jett for our theme music. You can check out his music at jasonjetmusic.com. And remember, you can watch the simulcast of this podcast when we're all done. If you love listening to us, I'm quite sure you'll love watching us with the tomfoolery and shenanigans on sweet929.tv. All love to our sponsors, JSW Media and Made LC. So today I've got one of my good friends, a I don't want to say special guest because you're like a always guest, um, you know, present in my life somehow. And, um, you know, and and we go back and we have some great conversations. And I, you know, I knew, you know, when we curated this list that you definitely be on it. Um, So for folk that don't know, um, we're going to give a little bit of background, but you're going to definitely have to do a little bit more than I'm going to do. But she is the curator at the Beckler Museum. Um, someone with a ton of art knowledge um, and, I, and a lot of art history knowledge as well. And so sitting in the chair to my right is none other than another doctor in the building, Dr. Jen Edwards. Jen, how you doing? I am well, Keith. How are you? I'm great. Good to Excellent. have you. Excellent. Good great to, to be And good here. to see you. It's always good to see you. Because I, I do see you, um, disclaimer, I'm on the Beckler board. <laughs> and I see you four times a week at various art events. You, I mean, you, you are everywhere. At the same time. Yes. There's two of me. Did you know that? I actually wanted to talk to you about that tonight. Yeah, it's, there's about two of record. me. Yeah, it's two of me. <laughs> but I won't disclose where the other Keith is right now. But there are two of me. Yeah, I know what's going on. Wait, he's got to be at the poetry slam that's going on right you now. Can't, you can't tell people where he is. So, so Jen, this is a drinking podcast. Yeah. And so we are already, yeah. we've already started. Mm-hmm. But you've, you've also came on and made a drink. You are actually the first guest to make a drink. I usually make the drinks and for, for the guests. But oh, you came man. on and made a drink. So first off, before we get to that, what's your favorite cocktail? What's your go-to? If you, if you were at a bar and, and you needed to get... Get it going. What are you ordering? So it depends on where I am. Um, I love Manhattans, mm-hmm. but I have to be honest with you, most people outside of Manhattan cannot make a good Manhattan, <laughs> and I don't have time for that. So I tend to not get them unless I'm in New York. Um, gin martini has been my drink mm-hmm. of the last six months. Mm-hmm. I feel like I've mastered it at home. Did you, did you just come back to it or was it something you already drink, drinking martinis huh. before or all of a sudden the gin martini came back? Um, there was one summer when I was 22 that my roommate decided that summer was a time for gin drinking. Mm. And we committed hard. And when you drink a lot of gin, it's kind of a hallucinatory drunk. Have you noticed that? Like gin actually is. It has. Oh, gin is bad. Listen, I was so Scott Seifert was here, and gin. He he actually brought gin back to me. We were talking about on the podcast. He said the same thing. Gin Uh is a summery drink. It it is for warm weather. It's hot. Mm -hmm. Pull out some gin. 
I, I left gin years ago. I had some really bad experiences. And I said, you know what? I'm, not, I'm never going back. But I, I came back this year. But I still, won't, I still won't make my martinis with it, though. I'm still a vodka You're martini. A vodka guy. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, see, I like pure, like vodka gimlets. I need lime or something in my vodka. Mm. So, but gin, I can drink gin straight, but I have to be really careful. I, uh, my ceiling is one because I get drunk on those pretty quickly. Oh, you got to know your, you got to know your ceiling. Oh my gosh, yeah. So, so talk about so you again. So you made us, you made us some drinks. Sazerac. Sazerac. Tell talk to people about the, if they've never heard about it, if they've never been to New Orleans. New Orleans. Go ahead. Uh, Sazerac is the drink of New Orleans. It was created there sometime in the 1850s. It's supposedly the first cocktail I was telling you before, but that mm-hmm. is an apocryphal story, not true at all. <laughs> um, and it was originally made with cognac. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, it was cognac and So not absinthe. the rye. No, not the rye. But then there was a blight on the grapes of France, and they couldn't get cognac, so they started using rye whiskey. So they still use rye whiskey. I am not crazy about cognac. I love cognac. I see you have it over there. I love cognac. Oh, yeah. We should try it with your cognac. That's yeah, we, we okay. Can, we we're here now. <laughs> we <laughs> decided we're but, but we can always second. revisit. Um, but so um, keep going. Yeah. So Sazerac was kind of the drink of New Orleans. And uh, when absinthe was made illegal, they started making it with uh, anise. And they mm. called it Herb Saint. Mm-hmm. Um, and they used a special bitters from Pecho, which was the, um, apothecary in New Orleans and he made it with mint. So it's an unusual bitters to use. Oh my God. I'm totally, I feel like it's just hitting me now too. I'm getting all like, come on, come with it. Um, (laughs) just ride it, ride it out. Ride your wave. Um, so yeah. So I tried to get, I didn't have any more Pechos with me. So I used some mint based bitters. It tastes about right. It's very good. It's the bummer is that it's really I feel like it's a winter drink because mm-hmm. it's not over ice. Like you chill the glass and everything and you're supposed to mix it in like a And you also glass. told us not to touch the top of the glass. Well, I mean the oh, bottom yeah, of the glass. Here I am doing it. That might be why mine's warm. And it was sitting in my hot car. But yeah, it, it feels more like a winter drink because it warms you up. When you're sick, it's brilliant because between the bourbon and right. the bullet rye. If you and got the, some if you got some phlegm, yeah, man. You'd be good anise, to go. Good for your stomach. All right. Mint for your throat. So basically it's a southern hot toddy. There you go. So, so if you if you haven't made these before, try them, make them, and not only are will you get drunk, <laughs> they're healthy for you. So we're pushing the healthy aspect. Jen, Herb Saint's like a hundred proof. I see that. And you can only get it in New Orleans. Okay. So I brought that back with oh, me. Oh wow! When I went in January. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Where are you from? Originally, I grew up in New Jersey, but I started going to New York City when I was 12 for school. So I commuted back and forth. Mm-hmm. And then I moved there permanently when I was 18. And when, when did the art bug hit you? Um, I don't know. I guess when I was really young. Like, I think when I was five, my mom started bringing me in one weekend a month into the city to go to different museums. And... I don't know. It was just really lovely because you were surrounded by people, but you were by yourself Mm -hmm. and you could just look at the work. And it was just this communal experience, but also very personal at the same time. And I love that about it. And I feel like that's true in every art form, whether it's theater or music or dance. Um, And I feel like that's me as a person, too. Like I'm very extroverted, but I really like my writing time when I'm by myself. I think you're very whimsical at times. Yeah, most times. Okay. 
Yeah, I totally agree. So, so was there one particular piece that stood out for you in your younger years that really that spoke to you and really said, I love what I'm looking at and art is what I want to do? Yeah, Guernica changed my life when I was, I think I was like nine or 10. And my parents both worked at JCPenney and they had a, um, they were able to get into MoMA for free. So okay. we used to go to MoMA a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we went one night to look at Guernica. And I remember the room being filled with people because I, I don't remember why, but um, it was just me and that painting. Like everyone else dropped away and I was overwhelmed by the emotion and the pain, even though I didn't understand it. I didn't know the history of it. I didn't know it was about this bomb town. I didn't know about the, the symbolism in it, the art historical connections, nothing. I just knew that it was pure horror and emotion. Mm. And that completely changed me when I looked at images. And I think that was the moment when I realized like visual language was something unto itself and something that we needed to learn how to understand and communicate with. And that it was this, this language that was ruling our lives, even though most people didn't uh, appreciate it or recognize it or attend to it in a way that I thought was important. So yeah, after that, I really started focusing on it, even though it wasn't what I was going to do until my thirties. So we're going to jump around a little bit because you know, you're, you're touching on some things I want to talk about that yeah. I think there really is a conversation that a lot of folk haven't had or they want to have, but don't understand. So you, you talked about that level of appreciation. Mm-hmm. How do people learn to appreciate works of art? And, and, and we understand the masters. If someone knows a, a Picasso, they see it, they're like, Oh my God, that's what it is. But when you're seeing pieces that may have less name recognition, and people walk into a gallery, walk into the Beckway, walk into the Mint. How can they start to gain an appreciation for art? I mean, I think you have to start with that personal reaction. You know, like, does, do, are you interested? Does this strike you? Is, does this strike your curiosity? Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't have to like something because it's beautiful or because it moves you or because it strikes some chord within you it can just there's so many works that I look at them and I'm like I do not get that at all or I think that's hideous (laughs) and I want to learn more about it and those are usually the works and the artists that stay with me the longest because I take the time to investigate and understand Mm -hmm. what they're trying to do and um, I figure out why I didn't get it the first time or what the what the puzzle was that I I just didn't have the final piece for so so in order so outside of looking at it yeah you, you have to do some some background on the piece you think is, is that a well way? ideally a fine museum is offering you all the information uh-huh. you need to have your gateway um no i mean that's why museums are a nice place for the general public to go because ideally you do have contextualization and you have different avenues. So you Mm -hmm. have like the wall text, you have the vinyl, which gives you that short intro and you could see the whole show without reading individual pieces and just read about the artists that, or the pieces that interest you. You have people in the galleries to talk to you. I mean, that's why if you're just coming to the arts, you're a general public and you go to see art once a year. Mm -hmm. Um, that's why museums are ideal. Um, if we do our job right, of okay. course. So, and, and so a big part of that, I think, you know, we, we talked about the job, the engagement piece mm-hmm. for folk. Um, 
why do people believe that art can be intimidating? You know, as, as they're walking to this space, that, that's I, I hear that a lot. I hear that, that all the time. That that art is intimidating. Walking into a gallery, people don't have you know they don't know what to expect. Mm-hmm. Again, they don't feel like they have that certain level of appreciation. Help break that down for people that you know you can walk in, feel comfortable, take a look, and what you gain from it is is your personal experience. It's not what has to happen. I think where they think this is a big boom. And I'm automatically, you know, an art history major. Yeah, it makes me really sad because I have this conversation all the time. And it makes me just want to punch people in the face. <laughs> because, I mean, I think, and, you know, you were in the city the same time I was. Like, there was a huge explosion in galleries in the early 80s. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I really felt like I had ownership over the art because I could go into these spaces for Free. Free, yeah. And it was true at the museums, too. I mean, the MoMA was the only one that you normally had to pay for um, in the Guggenheim. But, like, the Met was free. And it was, I don't know, I felt like it was the one free form of entertainment that I guaranteed had all the year round. Right. This summer, you had the plays and the opera and you had the ballet. But, yeah, art was all the time. And you could leave if you didn't like what you were looking at. Like, right. if I only wanted to look at paintings... There was a year where I only wanted to see paintings of dancers really? because I was dancing. Gotcha. Um, and so, yeah, I just wanted to see pictures of ballet dancers. So, like, if it wasn't a Degas, I was out of the gallery. Um, but you could do that. Like, you know, there was no harm, no foul. And it, it really upsets me when people tell me, like, they don't want to go to the, even our galleries here, like Melberg or Soko or Sozo, because they say that they're intimidated. By, and what do you think they're intimidated by? I think there's that expectation that you need to know what you're looking at and so often you look at a work and you're just like I don't like the painting behind you which is you know it's clearly Paris it's clearly representational but then I think people immediately are like I don't understand why they it's all rough and bumpy and why they used a palette knife and I don't understand you know like there's always something that I think people latch on to to make them question that whether or not they should be looking at it or that Mm. they have the knowledge to understand it. Um, I think because I think people have too high an expectation on themselves to always be right. This is going to get really big, really fast. But um, I mean, I think in general, we're not a very humble people. Hmm. (laughs) So like, I think there's this expectation that we have to know Know everything we have. Yeah. And like, we're not comfortable saying, I don't get it or I don't know about that or um, you know what? I don't like it. I'm which not is, sure why I don't like it. Which I think I is a great, a, a great opportunity for people to to ask questions, right? If, if, you said if, if the museums, the curators, the people who work there are doing their job, then part of that is someone asking questions. Mm-hmm. Hey, listen, you know, can you tell me a little bit more about this piece? And hopefully, there's some information transfer that allows you to feel comfortable, especially if it's abstract and you're looking and seeing yeah. things in there that you know you think you see, and then if somebody points out, well, yeah, you kind of do see that or you know if the artist is there if the artist is still alive and you can talk to the artist and they can kind of help mm-hmm. break that down and I, I that's another point i think with you know with with the intimidation piece i think some of that is lowered when people actually meet some of these artists they're not these pie mm-hmm. in the sky you know pontificators they really are yeah. just oh my god they're workers yeah they're just working most of them work eight hours a day and most of them are like scared of the same things everyone else is scared uh-huh. of. Yeah. I mean, art is a job, like making art is a job, presenting art is a job. But I do want to say in defense of the audiences, 
Um, people who work in the arts can be like pretentious dicks. <laughs> and so, I mean, it, the humble element needs to go around, you know, like I, yeah. I think it's, I think people in the arts traditionally were from um, a very rarefied sphere because they didn't pay much to right. the gallerists. To the, right. And because you were circulating with these very wealthy people and so you had to be of that circle. And so usually the people who own galleries or who um, or who work in galleries or auction houses or museums, like they came from positions of wealth because they could afford Fortnite. to... Yeah. Um, I mean, that was true. Like most people in my art program, in my art history program, it wasn't until I think... The last 10 years when scholarships started hiking up that we had people who were there from middle class backgrounds. Um, and so that's we're not helping either on the on the professional side. So you make a good point. So I, I saw an article in The New York Times um, and, and they were talking about women in curation uh-huh. and, and specifically Ugh. minorities as well. Yes. So there's this huge gap. They're hiring. <laughs> that, the huge gap of, of, of women and women in color in, in curation. And so I think that speaks to your point about, you know, at one, at one point when all this started out, it was highbrow, a little bit of classism. Mm-hmm. Um, and now that those things are coming down a little bit, folk are allowed, you know what I'm saying, these positions and an opportunity to do it. For yourself, you're a woman, mm-hmm. you're a curator. What is it that you see and how have you helped break down some of those barriers? So um, I actually did a paper on this in 2002, I think it was. Historically, the number of women in the museum profession and in in art history degree programs outpaced the men by like three to one. Mm-hmm. Um, so women have always been a force in the graduate programs and in the field, they were always relegated to education. They were always relegated to assistant associate curators. Mm. Um, I mean, very rarely do you see them in positions of power. It's only recently that we have chief curators. Um, So I think there's, I mean, I think the chauvinism that exists in every single field is particularly evident in the arts because you have so many women working the lower positions and so many men at the top. At the top. Um, and I honestly don't know when that is truly changing. I don't really see it changing in any sort of real way. Um, as for the people of color, this is something that has been a discussion at least for the last, since I started grad school, so 20 years. Um, and... You know, people talk about cultivating in undergrad and they talk about cultivating in postgrad. It's like grade school and high school. It's fifth and sixth grade. It's like going in there and making everyone comfortable mm-hmm. and realizing all the different fields that are available, available. to them. Yeah. Because, I mean, again, it's, it is still a rarefied field and it's not like there are a ton of jobs out there that pay a great deal of money. Right. So if you compare, you know, lawyer, doctor, oh. PR person. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, why? Why so, would I do it? And you don't, and there isn't, there still isn't the comfort level at all. And so I think that um, it's got to start. I mean, that's why I really try and mentor in the undergrad, but I really want, I really want to do stuff with high school kids and ideally with like start. that fifth to sixth grade level. Yeah. Yeah. Like teach them how to, it, the thing that's great about art is that you're forced to talk about it. And that means you're forced to learn how to 
how to code your ideas and your emotions in some sort of understandable way when that in itself is abstract. It doesn't matter if you're looking at an abstract or a figurative work. Like you have to learn how to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And that affects all of your communication. Once you can talk about an artwork, you can pretty much talk about everything, whether it's why you offended me or why I'm excited to go to this party. Like it, it transfers everywhere. It's a transferable skill. Yes, it is. So tell people what a curator does. You know, a lot of people may not know what that term actually means. I mean, for your day to day Mm -hmm. and what that means to a museum um, like the Beckler or the Mint or the Gantt to be a curator. What what is a curator? Um, So basically we uh, think about what the show should be and then we pick the artwork that goes in the show. We do all the research for it. We do all the writing. We figure out um, how the gallery should look. In my case, I do most of the exhibition design as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So I decide what colors the wall should be, where there should be new walls, how things will be hung. Um, Yeah. It's really telling the story through the artwork. And that is both the visual object and also the story that you read on the walls or in the catalog. So how long does it take you normally to, to process, you know, when you know, when you see what you're going to do uh, to start a show, how long in advance are you processing uh, all that stuff? I mean, ideally it would be three years if I were like... For one show? Oh my God. If I were going to be really serious and thoughtful and yeah, it would be three years. And wow. I don't have that. Like... I come up with those shows a couple of years in advance because we need to, but like I'm usually working on shows three to four months out because I'm doing four shows a year. year, Most museums curators do personally create one show every three years, every two, three years. Yeah. So I did not know that. Yeah. It's usually that long. And, and is that through your process for procurement, um, for everything that you need to get the pieces that you need, mm-hmm. um, to like you said, to decide how this scheme is going to work from naming it mm-hmm. to, to putting it on. That, that takes three years. Yeah, because I, wow. I mean, most museums. So, for example, I requested I'm doing my next show is Latin Americans in Paris about um, all of these artists coming from. Central and South America and going to Paris in the 50s, 60s and 70s and the exchanges that happened there, how like there were all these kinetic artists working in Paris at the time and they exchanged these artistic ideas. But then the Central and South Americans were bringing all of these ideas about um, socialism and revolution and how all of these um, political ideas could be injected into art making. Um, and that was happening in Europe too, but it was, you know, that's the exchange that's Mm -hmm. going on. So these works are big and they're kinetic. They move, they light up, they make noise and they're complicated. And they, a lot of them have not, these aren't well-known artists. They're just starting to get more attention over the last two years. So a lot of these works like haven't been turned on since 1968. Um, and so, you know, I'm requesting them in the last six months, but really I should have been requesting them 12 to 18 months ago so people could go like plug it in, Get them see start, what yeah, happens. Warm them up. Yeah, yeah like, <laughs> oh, look, it needs new light bulbs. Gotcha. Oh my goodness. This, you know, this gasket is blown. We need to make a new one because they don't sell them anymore. Wow. So we need to actually forge one with iron. Um, so a lot of those things happen And that's true of anything, you know, like asking for a painting, is it falling apart? Like we have paintings that we can't tour because like literally it's about to crumble off the surface. So those are things a museum has to assess before they can agree to loan it. And that takes 
you know, a year to really, because a lot of people are asking. Do, do most, museums have, most museums have good relationships with other museums where you can put a call in and say, hey, listen, we want to use some of the stuff you've got and, and you normally get positive responses? I mean, you want to share because you want your work to be on view. And certainly the stuff I've been showing at the Beckler, I specifically request things that usually either have never been on view or are not often on view mm -hmm. because like I want to get that stuff out of storage. And also because I'm trying to focus on artists who aren't terribly well known. And the Beckler collection has a lot of like esoteric Europeans that are not very well known in the States, even though a lot of museums have them. Um, but yeah, a lot of it is social equity. You know, like, I've been around for a long time. So you know some fun. I mean, I'm a fun... Look at this Sazerac! I'm a fun person to drink with. <laughs> I can make a good meal. Um, so I cash in a lot of anxious chips. Chips, I, I was curious to say. <laughs> yeah, I just did that a month ago in L.A. Yeah, asking for a piece. Here's, here's a question. Yeah. Is, is Charlotte in artsy city? Or, <sighs> are, are we... The city, a city that truly embraces the art and cultural stuff that's going on. And I'm not talking about oh, a few Keith. folk. I'm talking about Charlotte as a whole. Keith. Keith. So, um, so I was in L.A. Uh, two weeks ago. And I came here from Los Angeles. So I was in New York really from like 1982 until 2007. And I spent 2007, 2008 during my dissertation in Europe. And then 2008 to 2015, I was in LA. Um, and I spend, I'm back in New York about four to five times a year. Mm -hmm. And I'm back in Los Angeles about three times a year. So I was just out there for the two weeks. And I was trying, I've been really, honestly, I've been really frustrated the last year with what is going on here. Mm -hmm. I mean, oh my goodness. So much promise. Artists are moving here by the bus I, You can see it. <laughs> oh my gosh. All these spaces are opening up yeah. and like people are really eager and all ranges like mural collectives. Oh, yeah, that's huge. now. Like the independent residencies, the independent galleries and like with real like what David Wesley's doing at Black Market. It's like really investing in the artists and their mm -hmm. practice. That's right. And the same with Goodyear. And I oh, mean, yeah. I think that's an extraordinary commitment to like art making in general it has nothing to do with the money. Um, and so I see that like grassroots ground level commitment and people like you, you know, who I see at all of these art events, whether it's for profit galleries or grassroots or the mm -hmm. museums. And so I keep thinking like, I feel like we're in this like, like trying to start the lawnmower <laughs> thing. Like we can make this happen. But then I go to Los Angeles and I see where it's actually uh, happening. And I come back here and I'm like, and so this trip, I really was thinking hard about it. And I feel like fundamentally, and I've only been here three years, but I feel like fundamentally Charlotte is a conservative city. Yes. And I don't mean that Republican, Democrat, right, or anything right. like that. Just, I mean, it's a banking city. Things move slowly. People like to think a long time about things. People don't like to ruffle feathers. People like to be very thoughtful but pedantic about how they do business. Mm -hmm. And the arts aren't about that. The arts are about like big, fast change yeah like that is a thriving art city where you will allow someone to come in and just blow up a building and be like well that didn't work out great but good for trying you know like 
they take that chance. And I just don't, I don't know. I, the new people I see who are coming to town, there's still that banker mentality. Yeah. I don't know that these yeah. new people coming in are going to change that. And I, I think, you know, what I've, what I've been seeing, I think there's still some segmentation, mm-hmm. you know, with, with arts and, 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 and it could be still classism, Ugh, um, yeah. you know, which is huge. And, and I still think even when I look, you know, as, as an African-American, you know, while there are folk who are interested in it, you know, minorities, um, they're, they're creating a lot of the stuff, but they're not in front of the people who actually can buy it. Um, or the people that are interested in showing it in other spaces outside of, you know, the guerrilla marketing, mm-hmm. the um, grassroots types of venues. And so I think there's some frustration on that end. Yeah. And then when people feel like the stuff that they are getting, I, I think, mm-hmm. you know, folk that I talk to, you know, there's, a, there's this big thing and it, and it drives me fucking nuts. But it's this, um, this you know, this whole uh, paint and sip art. Yeah, yeah. If, if I see another fucking paint and sip show, and people feel like, you know, that this is going to be appreciable art. Like, you know, I did this. Look at it. It's like it's not. You know, it, it was a date. It was date night. Have a good time. I'm not taking away from having your good time, but also understanding that, you know, you need to move past. And I think there are some learning. There's some, some teachable moments in there. If, mm-hmm. if the paint and sip is talking about, you know, a, a Monet and mm-hmm. we're going to we're going to do that and you get some historical context behind that. Mm-hmm. And that drives you to say, you know what? Well, I really want to see the original. You know, mm-hmm. and, and learn more about the guy who did it. Mm-hmm. I think there, there's a win. Mm-hmm. But if it's just, you know, I got drunk, I sipped, I sipped and I painted, and I left, and I can't wait for the next and one. And I still made this. And I still made this. <laughs> um, I, I think we're, we're, we're giving people this false cachet of art appreciation where they feel like they are now. Yeah, I'm all into it. You're not. You, you just drank wine and stroked a couple of dots paint by numbers i think that's true i think people are but again it's the humble thing like i think people are eager to feel like they're masters of something or that they have the entry the entry point but i also like i don't know i really hope those paint and sips are gonna show people like how incredible it is to make something with their hands like i keep hoping that's another gateway because you know it's like a good year we and i i mean i don't know what um damn it wesley's model is with the um with the cognac at black market but i know giving free alcohol gets a lot of people in who wouldn't normally go and that's but i mean i do feel like it's dulling the nerves of those people who are intimidated by the scene so if this false confidence that hey i was able to paint a recognizable flower after four glasses of Chardonnay. So I I have no problem walking into the mint and telling the Tell docent me. what I think about <laughs> these Monets. Um, I mean, then I feel like it's a small price to pay. I got you. <laughs> like, yeah. So you, you brought up real quickly um, your dissertation. Uh-huh. Um, and I want to believe that was on Nikki Saint Defoe. It was, yeah, yeah. And for for some folk, if you're listening or if you if you don't know, so Nikki Saint Defoe was responsible for the Firebird yep. that sits out front of the Beckler. Can you talk a little bit about that piece? Because you know, of course, I think that is now Charlotte. I think when people mm-hmm. think of Charlotte and taking a selfie or taking a picture, the Firebird or the Disco Chicken or whatever the hell you want to call it, oh, you said it. Uh, the Disco Chicken. <laughs> um, I think it has become now one of the emblems. 
yeah. of Charlotte. So can you educate, pe- educate people on that piece? Mm-hmm. Um, do you know where it was before it got uptown? It traveled the world. So, so talk about it's traveling, sort <laughs> traveling of traveling pants, that you have to, <laughs> sisterhood of traveling firebird yeah. pants. <laughs> yeah, it's actually really nice because uh, Seth Fowler herself was very, she wandered, like she was very peripatetic. She grew up in New York City, but then she moved to Europe when she was um, 20 and just wandered. Um, and her work is this kind of snowball of all of those travels um, and all of the thoughts that she had on those travels. So she was self-taught. Um, and she spent a lot of time going not only to museums, but also to churches and to temples and to outsider artist places and, um, you know, like weird gardens that, you know, some count in Italy built in the, you know, in secret, um, and made like weird devil mouths that you walk through to get to the garden. Um, so she looked at everything. She was a true culture vulture and, all of that kind of fed into her artwork. And she experimented with everything. She did painting, she did sculpture, she did found art, she did performance, she did theater, um, she did film. And one of the things that she was always trying to figure out was um, how to merge. And the current Beckler exhibition talks about this, Wrestling the Angel. But one of the things that she was always trying to figure out was like the spiritual element that could be found in art. Because it was something that she was always looking for, like how to feed her soul, but also express her soul mm. in some way through the, the visual image. And so she started doing a series of totems that came out of this world travel where she was not only looking at art all over the place, but also studying those religions and those folk practices that existed in all those places. So the firebird is this unity of um, the Italian tesserae practice, that glass mosaic practice, um, and the um, mythology that comes out of... Egyptian lore and also um, I think there's some Hindu in there um, but the idea of a of the phoenix that you know that rises from the ashes but also the sun god the sun bird mm-hmm. merging um, and th- it was part of a series um, a couple of series you can find that the version of that sculpture at the tarot gardens in Italy so there are more more similar I- I believe there are three exact replicas. Oh, wow. And then there are other versions. So if you go to the Tarot Gardens, which is her um, her version of the tarot, mm-hmm. um, the cards, um, you can find a version there. You can also find a version. And where, in, where is that? In Grosseto, Italy. Italy. So just at southern Tuscany. It's amazing. I cannot recommend it enough. It was the most magical experience. Um I, yeah, my goal is to spend three days there one day, just like sleeping in the gardens. It's incredible. You can touch it. Every day. Wow. Um, and then Queen Khalifa's garden, which is in uh, Escondido. She has a version <clears throat> there. Um, but those, she has a number of large mosaic sculptures like that, that literally have traveled all over the world. And the Firebird in particular has been all over Europe and all over the United States. It was in, ooh, it was in Atlanta. It was in, I believe it was in Chicago. 
um, Andreas Beckler, who purchased it for the city of Charlotte, he had seen it in Atlanta, but then he originally had seen it in Switzerland because it was in front of another Mario Botta, the architect who did mm-hmm. the Beckler building. Um, it was in front of one of his buildings that was a library in Switzerland. And um, the I, I think the Firebird was like put in front of various buildings for like a couple of months or maybe a couple of and years at a time. And then it would move on. So... Um, the Beckler did an exhibition on the Firebird, I think right before I came, like 2014, um, Celebration of the Firebird. And it was, they had pictures of it all over the world. It was like Paris and Switzerland. And so if that, if that piece was moving around all that time, no one else wanted to buy it? Or what, I mean, how does that factor into Andreas, you know, saying, hey, I'll take it off your hands? Now, it is a magical piece. Right. However, it is also a lot of work to maintain. Gotcha. And it's a nightmare to install. I mean, you have to be committed to buy one of those giant <laughs> sculptures. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we, you're on our board. Right. Like, you see the budget. I mean, we spend, we have to take care of that four times a year. Four times a year, yeah. And the Stravinsky Fountain in Paris, like they, I mean, the foundation and the city of Paris, like wrestle over that every three to four years, who's going to pay for it. And same with Queen Khalifa. I feel like every four years that place is closed because they have to redo everything. I mean, there are a lot of work. There are a lot of maintenance. It's a nightmare to install it. We are so... Just blessed to have that in Charlotte. It was a wonderful gift from Andreas. Yeah. But like you have to be committed to want to buy one of those. So for it being out there mm-hmm. every day, I mean, this thing is out there 24-7, 365. Yeah. With full access. Full access. People can touch So that's it. what I was going to say is the touching, the rain. Yeah. I, I mean, how oh, a, a, piece like, a piece like that. I mean, what's the what's the time? I mean, does it is it getting damaged, you know, day in, day out to the point that essentially you would have to take it away from there? No, um, we are really aggressive about the conservation. So, no, I mean, but that's we're committed. So we'd never have to build Four a barrier times around a it. Year. Oh, I wanted to put in a moat. Oh, for sure. I wanted a <laughs> moat around it because we had skateboarders ollieing off that. her legs. Off her legs, yeah. And that was that was horrible. I mean, yeah, because the I mean the tiles are actually very stable. Um, we can't replace them. We can, but we haven't had to, and we don't want to. I mean, they're actually difficult to replace, especially the colored ones. Um, but yeah, no. Uh, it's the constant upkeep that we've invested in has made it possible for us to not have to replace stuff. But, I, you know, it's six of one, half dozen of the other. If we didn't do that, then yeah, every like two to three years, like a lot of these other places that don't have those resources, they would have to overhaul. And shut it down. Every, oh my God. Queen Khalifa, it's a fortune and it's like a year that place is shut down for a year, so wow. they rebuild all. I mean, it's also a whole garden. Like, okay. it's a lot of stuff. But, like, yeah, you have to re-affix. Like, you have to put in all those tiles and the, oh, oh my gosh. But Doesn't, it's a magical work. I'm so glad we have it. I am, Worth too. Every, and I know Charlotte is appreciative. I, like I said, it, it shows up everywhere. Um, and oh, it's so, a remarkable work. It's a remarkable And she's piece. a remarkable artist. I mean, I committed to doing my dissertation on her because 
not a lot of people knew about her and she was extraordinary as an artist as a person as a woman like didn't she have a, a love life didn't, didn't she in love with someone who was another, oh, another artist yeah she was a partner of Jean Tangley yeah. that was her second husband before that she was married to Harry Matthews the poet um, and writer yeah she had she had quite a very rich love life well right she's a, she's a wanderer I mean when you wander you ultimately bump into a lot of love a snowball for art traditions and a snowball and for <laughs> romance <laughs> And lovers so, of all types. <laughs> Women, so, men. Really? Uh, 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 oh, my know. gosh, yes. Okay. Well, oh, the stories. I'm quite sure. Yeah. I kept them on my dissertation. You have another Sazer. I can I'll tell you all about that. Okay. So you've got, you've got two boys. Uh-huh. <laughs> Talk about art for younger generations. How do we market art to, to younger generations? So um, the boys, that you should mention, um, Jean Tangley, who is Nikki de Saint-Paul's second husband, um, and who the Becklers also were very committed patrons for, um, he was he was one of my entry points for the boys because it's kinetic art. It's a lot of you know you can press a button and you make Touch it go. Button. And um, so I'm hoping this Latin Americans in Paris will similarly be very engaging for both boys and girls. Um, my experience has been in general, they want to hear the stories. Like they want to know what's going on and they they need a narrative that, that positions the work in a story that they can then live in themselves. Um, so I had to give some tours for specifically 10 to 12 year old boys for the Maestros Mexicanos, which is all Mexican photography. And I was terrified about that. And I realized if I just kept telling the stories particularly about like the bloody battles they love that. Post- especially boys they'll love that revolution yeah it worked out great um and so i feel like pretty traditionally like there's either the making aspect like this is how this is made now go and do this and the hands-on approach is really valuable but i feel like storytelling i mean that's why the paint and sip thing like I feel like it's either hands-on or it's the stories. And I feel like that's true for every generation. But I do feel like getting the kids in young because the school trips come and those are like mixed class and race. Like that's where segregation happens. And if you have a dull like resentful docent or gallery attendant who's like, oh my God, I can't believe I have to talk to these, you know, fifth graders who just want to go and like poke the girls and giggle. And you're not gonna, you've lost an entire lifetime for those. Mm. Very few of those kids are going to be like, well, it it was the docent's fault. They're going to take it on themselves. They're going to blame themselves for, you know, I don't get it. It wasn't interesting to me. I don't care. Um, but my brother was very difficult as an art audience. And so he, like my two boys, um, I choose what I take them to very carefully. Okay. And, you know, Strummer, my 12 year old, he has traveled the world to see Ai Weiwei. He is committed to Ai Weiwei's practice because there's an intense political struggle Mm -hmm. that's there. Um, and yeah, he works with Lego. That was appealing. But I mean, it was really the political narrative that engaged him. And so that works out great. But I am, I'm not taking him to see a show of Nikki de Saint Paul. Okay. For sure. Um, yeah. I, you gotta be, you have to be considerate. 
So real quick, I want to touch on um, collecting. Okay. And and I know I always you know always hit you up you know every time I see you if I'm gonna buy something or if you're there. How can people? How much sooner as you think of it that way? I think I'm bugging you to buy all. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm, I, I take your advice. So, so I think you know, for people who don't have a curator in their life, I'm just blessed that I have a curator in my life. And if I'm at a show, you're at a show, and I can just say, hey, what do you think about this? And da 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 da. I'm happy to help anyone. If, if bye you, bye bye. If if you, if you don't have that, how can someone start to collect? And and and, and mm. I, I know it's very personal. I know you told me, you know, if you don't like it, don't buy it. No. Oh. I think that's rule number one. Yeah. If you don't like it, don't buy it. What's rule number two? Unless you have like a real professional curator and you're buying for investment. So that's another piece. That's another. So before we get to step three, step two, step one is if you don't like it, don't buy it. What's step two? For sure. Buy what you can afford. And that can be on layaway. I mean, certainly that can be true. But I mean, you know, a lot of people start with works on paper and with photographs because you can afford them. Um, and I think that's a great entry point. I think it's also great to start with something that grabs you, but then investigate. Like if you like, you know, if you like Renee Cloud or, um, Dia, which you did, Mm -hmm. then, you know, like there's this, they're part of the circle of artists at Goodyear. So you go and you see what's going on there. You meet them, you talk to them, you find out who they like, what they're interested in. And that leads to a whole other area, not just of like local artists that you can approach or living artists that you can talk to, but like a whole, it could be a whole other area of work that you can investigate. I mean, that's always, I think, the way to go like see what you like and then read about it and then see what you can just afford. constantly yeah and then constantly educate yourself um but i mean it's like anything once you really get the bug like i i don't know i shouldn't have bought that lillian blades that i bought today so you that did. i brought into your house <laughs> like you know gavin's gonna be very sad when i walk in the house with that piece and i can't leave it in the car because it's too hot but I love it. I mean, I love it. And I may not meet her. I might meet her. She lives in Atlanta. But I just really love the piece. And I just needed to have it staring at me. And so I committed to it. Um, but I think I think that's the way to go. Just go and see a lot. Because a lot of times you'll see stuff you don't like. I don't like probably 60% of what I look at. Okay. Um, and 30% of it is stuff that I'm curious about because I don't like it. You know, what I was saying before, like if I hate something, I want right. to know no, why right. I hate it. And right. then a lot of times I'm proven wrong, but there's 30% of things that I will never like. I do not think it's good, but I will show it because I know that other people will think differently mm-hmm. and I have to consider that. And I would say 15% of that time I show things that I know is not very good, but mm. I'm going to... I'm going to show it because uh, why not? Okay. So, and, and touch on the fact that you said, even with price, with price point, you don't have to spend, you don't have to pay for it all at, <laughs> at, at the time of purchase. Oh my God. And a lot of people don't lay know that. Layaway still lay, exists. Layaway still exists, world. especially in the gallery world and yeah. in artwork. And especially if you know the artist, then you can mm-hmm. work out a payment plan. Yeah. I pay for things on installment a lot. Oh, totally. And I mean, a lot of times it means you can't bring it home with you. Okay. But I have to say too, I like that model because I feel like if you're spending so much that you have to pay in installments, then you should take the time to think about it. 
and know that you have made the right choice. And certainly like there was a painting I bought that I had to pay for over the course of four payments. And I'm sure if I had stopped halfway and been like, look, I don't want this piece, but keep my money and I'll buy this other piece that I actually really still love, mm -hmm. then it could have worked out. But yeah, every time I thought about making the payment, it wasn't painful. It was another step towards getting the piece and that, that made want. it even more, it made me realize that I did in fact really want it. Um, but I'm a thoughtful purchaser. I mean, I tried on these glasses three years ago before I moved from Los Angeles and kept the picture in my phone for 18 months and stared at it. Everyone's so it was time to like, purchase? Yeah, because if I'm investing that much money in something, like I have to love it. Yeah, I don't, I don't have disposable income. And I mean, even if you do have a disposable income, you don't have disposable real estate. No. Like your walls are going to run out. Right. If it's not your cash, it's going to be your geography. It's going to be your space. So... You still have to be thoughtful about what you buy. I think that that is that is a great way to close. But I have a question for you. Go ahead, go 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 for it. Okay, so how did you become such a culture vulture? Like, was it college? I mean, you know, poetry, you know, art. You love those things. You love music. What? I, how'd that happen? I, I th well, for me, it, it started like you, uh, pretty young. Um, even though I think my mom didn't have a full appreciation. Mm -hmm. for art I think what she wanted was her her boys to have you know a certain level of information for conversation for growth mm -hmm. and and I and and also I think you know living in New York you have probably the biggest strategic advantage of art in any city New York hands down and again field trips mm -hmm. were always to oh my god yeah every museum I mean you know if you if you if you grew up in New York you've you've gone you should have gone but by, by the time you got to seventh grade I think you have gone yeah. to every museum the you've seen the Rockettes. Oh, you've seen like, it all. Like, you've seen everything. You see it all. I mean, everything. Yeah. And I think, you know, a big part of that is, you know, when you're young, you kind of really don't, you know, appreciate it. You're like, okay, we got to go again, you know, like, like down to the MoMA, down to the... I mean, you're like, yeah. oh, my God. But... <laughs> Not the cloisters. Again, it's so cold. Yeah. You know, but what, but what you're realizing as you get older is that you had exposure. Mm -hmm. And that exposure led you to an appreciation. Um, and I know when I got to Charlotte, it really was that I wanted to see, you know, other things that I had saw in New York. Um, you seek it out. But but I, I tell you, on the cheap, it was probably one of the cheapest dates. If you're trying to impress women, you know, back in college, I mean, taking somebody to the Mint uh -huh. on Randolph, I mean, you couldn't lose, man. You know, and, and she oh would... Oh, my God, the poetry readings. That's where you were going, the yeah, poetry she readings? Would, listen, she would think that you were the most cultured dude. Yeah, you know, it's like, oh, hey, it was good. It's all Finger snap. <laughs> and, and it's all ruined. Well, yeah, oh, my um, but I, but I eventually, I eventually, you know, began to see a, a deeper appreciation and also the advocacy piece that, mm -hmm. you know, as you start to talk to artists, as you said, you get to know them, you see them, they become your friends. Um, but your fr also my, my friend circle, I was always, you know, just like, man, you know, wh why am I one of the only persons doing this? Mm -hmm. And so it became a mission to drag folk yeah. to stuff. And, and I was like, listen, I can't be the only person seeing this taking part in this there is there's a, there's a level of engagement that needs to happen and, and if i have to be the conduit for that then then so mm -hmm. be it and and so i think that there's a personal mission in there now especially now i think more than anything i mean you see every time I, there's something you're an unrelenting ambassador oh yeah and that, you're always with someone yeah i bring people that's what i do yeah um because because it has to be one of those each one teach one moments and, yeah. and if i bring someone my my hope is that they'll bring someone else um, you know, I'm always giving tickets, passes to mm -hmm. people. Hey, listen, if you've never been, 
hit me up. You know, I tell people on Instagram, you know, social media, if you've never been to the Beckler, come find me and, and we'll make sure that you get there. And, and on top of that, like you said, I think, you know, that, that hoity-toity attitude, mm-hmm. we're going to cut that out because I'm telling you, if you need me to meet you there, I'm going to introduce you to somebody like yourself. I'm going to make the introduction so warm that you're going to want to explore more, deep dive, and really find an appreciation. And you, don't, and I tell you, you never have to go back again. But I never want to hear someone say, I've never been, or I don't like that place. But have you been? No. So how do you know you don't like it? Oh, I don't like art. I don't mm-hmm. like the opera. Well, have you ever been to an opera? No. So how do you know you don't like it? Experience it once and then tell me your thoughts. But if you've never done it, I don't want to hear it. And do you feel like when you get them in that one time, do you feel like they're experiencing it purely? Like they're not getting uncomfortable. They're not feeling self-conscious. They're not... I think so. I, I think depending on if, if they're with me, mm-hmm. then then yes, I feel like they really can immerse themselves. They really can have a good time. If if they're not, I don't know, you know, if, if they text me or call me and mm-hmm. say, hey, I got the passes, I went. Usually I get positive responses. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, it was the best thing ever. I mean, your shows, people always tell me, you know, your shows, yeah, they, they love them. Um, and it's a great introduction. They may mm-hmm. not have understood everything, but when they see some familiar names, mm-hmm. you know, they see Beard and... They see that stuff that they've heard about. There's a park across the street. And you're like, oh, yeah, right. I, I think I've heard that name before somewhere. They start making these connections. Mm-hmm. To me, like you, like you said, with, even with the paint and sip, if there's a connection being made and it sparks, you know, the next step in mm-hmm. that evolution, then, then, yeah, I'm all for it. Well, thank you because you are a tireless ambassador. I do what I can. So thank you for all you do. Well, thank you for really all you do. Because it really does help me and my, my artist crew. Hey. So Je- tell people where they can find you. On social media, my Instagram is at curator Jen. I post all my travels, all my art stuff, and also uh, the latest destruction from my children. Jen, thank you so much thank you, for coming Keith. on, and thank you for those Sazeracs. I mean, I, I think you know, I, I'm I'm trying to drink some of this red wine, but that Sazeracs really got me <laughs> where I need to be. Um, so remember. You can always catch Crafted with Cradle on iTunes, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio every month. And again, if you enjoyed this conversation, you can watch the simulcast on Sweet929.tv. So thank you all for listening. Get ready to tune in for another great episode next month as we continue to bring you curated conversations over cocktails with some of Charlotte's finest. And as always, Jen, raise your glass. Cheers. Cheers. Find Crafted with Cradle on iTunes and iHeartRadio. Check out video of the show at dailymotion.com and sweet929.tv. Oh, 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 oh,